Today's Bible reading comes from Genesis chapter 8, reading through chapter 9, verse 17. It's in your bulletin. You can find it on your Bible app or in a Bible. Oh, in the bulletin. I said the bulletin first. Starting at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. The fear of dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has lifeblood still in it. And for, your, and for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God has God made mankind. As for you... Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark, with you every living creature on earth. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy it and destroy life. Wherever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on the earth. This ends the reading of God's word. Glory be to God. Um, we're back after last week's short, brief break. We're back in uh, Genesis. We've been looking at Genesis 1 through 11 uh, in, a, in a series we're calling The True Story of the World. And the idea is, is that we need, if we're going to live wisely in the world we find ourselves in, we need to understand 
that world well. And the, the way to best understand that world well is to understand the earliest chapters of Genesis because they describe for us not only how the world came to be and why God made the world the way he made it, but also went, went wrong with the world and how God is at work making things right in the world uh, today. And so we've been making our way through this and, and last week we were supposed to deal with the flood itself and then we called an audible and we did a, a special sermon on, on uh, prayer and engage group stuff. And so now we're skipping the flood itself. I, I apologize to those of you who are like looking for, forward to that. Um, I don't know what to tell you. We're, you can come talk to me about it after the service if you want to get all your questions answered or, well, you can ask them. I can't guarantee you'll get them answered, but you can ask all the questions you want. But we're, we're going back now into the story after the flood and talking about the, the world after the flood that, uh, that God brought on the, on the world. And, and just to remind you uh, the circumstances, in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, we read this, and it's, it's a major indictment on the human race. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So that was the circumstances before the flood. The, the world had become so wicked that no longer was uh, God willing to put up with uh, the behavior. and the, He was hitting the reset button, so to speak. He, he caused this flood to come onto the wor- into the world, and it was an act, uh, actually, of what you could call uncreation. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of that. I don't have time. It's really fascinating literary stuff, though. Uh, so I encourage you to, if you want, to read up on this. Uh, go to... Well... No, I'm not going to tell you where to go at this point. Anyhow, sorry, I can't do it. I just can't do it. Otherwise, we will be here forever, and then you will really hate me. Um, God uncreated the world when he brought the flood. Now, here's a question I want to ask. I was going to say, okay, kids, here's a question for you, but there aren't many kids here. So it's all up to you, Abby. Ready? (laughs) What did God bring onto the earth? Oh, Zach's here too. All right, you guys are both stuck with this. What did God bring on the ark? Or what, no, not what did God bring on the ark. What went on the ark? This is a real question. Go ahead, throw it out. I know you know. Animals, very good. So God brought animals on the ark. What else, no, not God brought. Animals were on the ark. What else went into the ark? Pardon me? Noah and his families, that's right, his sons and his daughter-in-laws, so people went on the ark. So animals went on the ark, people went on the ark. Did anything else go on the ark? Can you think of anything else that went on the ark? Food? Yep, supplies. Anything else? What else went on the ark? All right, here's your answer. Listen to... Genesis 8, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. In other words, sin went on the ark too, and sin came off the ark. 
Now, why am I pointing this out? Because sin was the problem before the flood, right? God was angry with the human race for its wickedness, and so he was going to bring the flood on the earth. But now, after the flood, it just so happens that sin remains as the central problem of our world. And so maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, why would God bother flooding the earth or, or killing off everything in the world if he, to cleanse it and restart things if the problem remains? And the answer is this. God was committed not just to putting the world right, but he was committed to putting the human race right. If he was going to hit that reset button and start completely over with a whole new, a whole new plan without rescuing Noah and his family... You and I wouldn't be here. And God's fundamental desire was to see you and I be saved from this thing called sin. He's still committed committed to putting everything right. And so what we're going to see in this passage this morning is we're going to see how God committed to putting everything right. How he plans to put everything right. And and that plan can be summarized in one really, really important word in the Bible. And that's the word covenant. Now, if you look on the back of your bulletin, you'll see this outline. Uh, I hate it. Okay? I've completely changed it. So, you know, God's covenant with nature, our covenant with... It was just complicated and silly. So, we're going to look at these three things. God's covenant, what is God's covenant that he makes in this passage? Then number two is going to be the terms of the covenant. And then number three, the sign of the covenant. Way better outline, okay? So if you want to scratch that out, if you're that kind of type A person, scratch out the ones I wrote, uh, or the ones in there, and, and put the new ones in. Covenant, this word covenant is extremely important if you want to understand how the world works and how God relates to the world. Some theologians actually say that this word is the central framework for understanding the entire Bible. It describes God's relationship to his creation. It describes God's relationship to his creation. And, and covenant is a unique kind of relationship. You know, we have lots of relationships. We have economic relationships. We have political relationships. We have friendships. We have uh, uh, biological relationships between parents and children. But a covenantal relationship is, is unique in this way. Because it's personal, but it's more than just personal. It's also legal. Okay? So it's more loving than just a simple legal relationship because it's personal. But it's more binding and more enduring than a typical personal relationship because it's also legal. So it's this unique blend of love and law. Covenants are. And so the personal aspect of this relationship that God has with the world he made is actually made more loving through the legal character of it. And we're going we're gonna to look at it together. Because God, what is astounding in this story is, is that God actually voluntarily binds himself to his creation through a covenant. Not just Noah. It looks like he makes a, a covenant with Noah and maybe Noah's family as well. But actually he is making a covenant with everything with the entire created order, and with you and me as well. And that means that you and I are in a relationship with the creator. Whether you recognize it or not, frankly, is irrelevant. It's still there. 
You're in a relationship with the creator, and because we're in a relationship with our creator, we actually have obligations, we have responsibilities in that relationship, and we need to understand what those are, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here we go. Let's look at this thing called covenant that God enters into with the earth, and then we're going to look at the terms of that covenant, and then the sign of the covenant. First of all, what is this covenant? In verse 1 and in verse 7, you read this. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's verse 1. Verse 7, as for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now, if you've been coming for a while, hopefully you hear an echo there to Genesis chapter 2. Or sorry, Genesis chapter 1. Because God said the very same thing to Adam when he created uh, human beings. He, he gave them this mandate, right? Be fruitful, increase in number, uh, fill the earth and subdue it. And now God is saying the exact same thing to Adam. He's saying, or sorry, Noah. He's saying, rule the earth. And remember, we defined rule not as rape and pillage, but cultivate, nurture, take care of the way a gardener does in, in the earth. He says, rule on my behalf. I want you to be in charge the same way Adam was going to be in charge. The thing is, is that the relationship is a bit different than it was when God made this relationship with Adam in the earth. Because in verse 2 and 3, we read this. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Now, what, what God is saying there is that the relationship somehow between animals, the natural world, and human beings before the fall was, and I put this in air quotes because I don't know what word to use, frankly. It was friendly or cordial. And things have changed. No longer is this language, no longer is the relationship between the natural world and human beings, no longer is it by nature, foundationally, friendly. It's actually antagonistic in some way. Now, I don't understand exactly what it means, but, but it does mean fear has entered this relationship. The language is used right here. You know, you fear a mouse in your house, maybe. You go, ah, and you jump on a table or something like that, and you go, ah, a mouse. Well, that mouse is way more scared of you than you are of it. Even lions prefer to avoid human beings, even though if a lion really knew what was up, they should never be afraid of a human being, right? Except when, well, you know what I mean. If it's just one-on-one, mano-a-liano, a lion is going to win every time, right? But there's that fear. I remember when I was a kid, I grew up in a rural Niagara area, and all my friends were dairy farmers, and I remember, you know, you go to a friend's house on the weekend, you know, you're eight or nine years old, and uh, they have to go milk, right? So you go into the dairy barn, and these massive Holstein cows, right? And, you know, the cow's in, the, in his way, and he just kind of, my friend would just kind of whack it on the rear end, and it would move, and he would walk by. I'd be like, wow, you have, like, what power? You're just this little pipsqueak, and this massive cow gets out of your way. So there's something about the relationship with human beings that has changed with respect to our relationship with the natural world and with, with, with animals around us. But here's what I want you to really notice. Notice that God is talking to Noah, yes, but he's actually talking to everything. The entire created order in verses 9 
through 11, he says this, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. And then what does he say? Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now this is huge. This is the only place in the Bible where God enters into this personal legal relationship with the entire created order. And the reason this is huge is because whenever God enters into a covenant relationship, it's always for the purpose of saving. Always. And so in other words, what God is saying here is, I'm not just going to save people. My plan of redemption, my plan to save, includes the created order. He's saying to the trout and to the robins and to the bees, you are in danger because of sin. Your existence is at risk because of sin. Not your sin, but the sin of human beings who I had put in place to rule on my behalf. Because of their sin, you are in danger. But I will save you. In the end, I will save you. Now, what are the implications of that? What does this mean? There's, there can be no debate. I mean, people debate climate change. And presidents of countries tweet out all kinds of statements about it. But there can be no debate about whether or not human beings have done damage to the earth. We've done many good things, no doubt, but we've done a lot of damage too. I was just watching on the news last night that the deforestation rate in Brazil, in the uh, rainforest, tropical rainforest, has accelerated again. And now they have a new president who seems to be very pro-deforest, like, like logging and all that kind of stuff. And that, that deforestation rate is going to increase. And that is not a good thing, according to climatologists and other uh, scientists as well. And like I said, people can debate climate change and what's happening and who's at fault, etc. But all you need to do is come out with us when we, when we serve with Stewards of Coots Paradise for one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, and look at the garbage that we had to clean up. I spent with my son, last time we went, my son and I spent two hours in a probably 10 square foot area picking up little bits of plastic that when they get into the water system, the fish eat them and they choke on them and they die. And it was just, I must have picked up, in that time frame, I must have picked up well over a hundred of those plastic tips on, on, you know, those Colt cigars or Captain Black cigars, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Over a hundred in this little, one little space. It's a disaster. Now, why should we care about the world? Now, prag pragmatists will say this. Well, if we don't care for our mother, what they call our mother, we'll die, right? And people will die. Or people will use the language of, well, I want to, my children to inherit a world where they have clean water to drink and they have clean air to breathe and all that kind of stuff. And so it's for the sake of the future of their kids. But here's the thing. When it's 35 degrees out and humid on, on, on a Saturday afternoon at home and you're just trying to find some relief, 
Very few parents are thinking, well, for the sake of the future of my kids, I won't turn on the air conditioning. And when we, when we think about our environmental footprint and we think to ourselves, well, if I buy a house that's, you know, a thousand square foot, feet smaller, and that's good for the environment, but me and my kids are going to be falling all over each other or feeling like we can't live in that kind of space, we try to buy the bigger house. Now, some of you are like, oh, you're making me feel guilty. Well, tough noogies, that's part of my job, okay? Afflict the comfortable. That's a, that's a preacher's job. But the point of it, and, and actually in the East, so no, what's my point? My point is here in the West, our pragmatist approach, it's unsustainable. We don't have the will. If we just simply say it's for future generations, we will not bear down and make the hard decisions that, that have to happen and sacrifice certain comforts in our lives in the here and now for the sake of those future generations. We will not do it. Now, maybe you'll do it in your house, Christian family, wonderful, happy to hear it, but as a culture, as a whole, as a society, we won't. But as a Christian, you say, you know what? God, God didn't just make trees, God loves trees. He didn't just create the rivers he delights in the rivers. When a babbling brook babbles, it is singing praise to its maker and he looks down on it and he delights in it and he is committed to it all. He is committed to redeem it. He is committed to save it. He is committed to rescue it. And as his representatives on this earth who are given the task of caring for it, we are committed to it as well. Not just so that my kids have a nice, clean water to drink, but because my God has gone to unprecedented lengths to redeem that created order. And I'll get to those unprecedented lengths in about seven or eight, ten minutes. So that's the first point. God's covenant with everything. Now, what are the terms of the covenant? In verses 5 and 6, it says this. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will, de I will demand an accounting for the life of this fellow man or fellow human being. For whoever sheds the blood of a human being, by human beings shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made humankind. Now, historically, some Christians have said, well, this is evidence of, uh, of the rightness of capital punishment. Whether capital punishment is true or not, you can't, you can't actually argue the, the rightness of capital punishment based on this text alone. What, what God is saying here is basically this. I've created a world and designed a world in which if you live by the sword, you will likely die by the sword. If you live a life of violence, you will likely die by violence. And that has been played out in every culture throughout history. That's virtually undeniable. But the bigger issue is, is God is talking about here the value of human life. It's quite astounding that God says he will actually even hold animals accountable for shedding the blood of a human being because, because of the inherent value that human beings hold as image bearers of God. So you see, 
mountain vistas, beautiful oceans, glorious sunsets. They don't contain, nor were they designed to contain, the glory of God in the way that a human being was and is. And that's true whether they're rich or they're poor or they're really beautifully physically attractive or ugly or they're old or young or super intelligent or disabled. Every single human being by virtue of being a human being has an infinite value before God. And we are held accountable for any ways in which we abuse them. And so that's why we, uh, this is actually the foundation of a Christian view of social justice and, and of actually of law. And even though our secular culture no longer uh, believes in the Christian foundation of social justice and law, the, our, our law system here in Western culture it remains based on this foundation, a foundation that it no longer believes, but it still uses to defend its law system and social justice uh, issues. So what am I saying here? The implications of this are obvious, and they're obvious for life. We are Grace Valley Church. We are a, we are a radically and openly and unabashedly pro-life community from uh, conception right to natural death. We emphasize and encourage being pro-life, not just at the beginning of life and at the end of life, but in the midst of life. And so we encourage things like foster care, and we encourage things like adoption, etc. And we've talked about that kind of thing before here. We're going to talk about an implication in another direction for a minute. Ask yourself this question. Is there anyone that you would not help because you think that they don't deserve it? Is there anyone that you would not help because you think that they don't deserve it? Maybe you think, you know, that person or those people, that category of people, they've made their bed and now it's time for them to lie in it. Maybe you, you think, you know, I've, I've, I've seen how irresponsible they are. You know, they just make stupid decisions one after the other constantly. And they won't take my advice. I've said to them, I don't know how many times, well, if you do that, this will happen. And then they go ahead and they do it anyway, even though I told them don't. Or maybe they've done things and they've lost a, a certain amount of uh, trustworthiness to you. So, for example, they, they have lied in the past and so uh, you can't trust them anymore. And so you can't really believe what they're saying to you. And so you, you say, well, then I can't help them because I don't know the truth about them. Or maybe they, they have always been so selfish about the way they have lived their lives that you feel like it's their own fault that they're in this space. And you think maybe you're just being just or you're just being wise. For example, simple example common example you walk by a homeless person on the street and they ask you for a couple bucks and you think well if i give them a couple bucks they'll just go buy a bottle of booze you're not in, you're trying to avoid enabling them now if there's anybody who you would think is pretty tough on those who have screwed up their lives by their own bad choices and ought to live with the consequences of it you'd think john calvin would be that kind of guy i don't know why maybe because it's from a long time ago 500 years ago Maybe because all the pictures of them make them look kind of grouchy. Not pictures, I guess they're drawings and, and paintings. But 
Listen to what John Calvin says about that. This is from the, the quote on the front of your bulletin. The Lord commands all men without exception to do good. Yet the great part of them are most unworthy if they be judged by their own merit. So what he's saying there is, most people, if they're judged by their merit, they, they don't deserve the good that we're supposed to do to them. He's just being honest about it. But here, scriptures help. In the best way, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. Say, he is contemptible and worthless. But the Lord shows him to be one to whom he is designed, ordained to give the beauty of his image. You will say he has deserved something far different from me. In other words, he deserves my condemnation or my judgment or my, I don't know, finger wagging, you should change your ways, dummy. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. We have an obligation to do good to all people and not judge them based on whether or not they deserve it. Simply because all people have been created with the divine stamp of God on them. And by virtue of that divine stamp, there is a beauty in them that overwhelms their wretchedness, as Calvin would describe it. Now, that is extremely convicting to someone like me, okay? I got to confess, that is extremely convicting to me. Because if I am completely honest, I have more than once, even with people very close to me and dear to me, I have withheld good because I thought, they're just going to blow it anyway. They're just going to do something stupid with it anyway. They're not going to receive it with thanksgiving anyway. And yet, that's a violation of God's covenant relationship with me as his child and as his image bearer. So, okay, obviously this is hard, right? This is real hard. This, these are the obligations that we are called to with respect to our relationship with the natural order and our respect to our relationship with other people. We cannot, cannot, cannot do it. And frankly, like I just said, sometimes we just don't want to do it. And, and it seems overwhelming. There's, there is always more kids to foster. I saw a lot of them yesterday at a Christmas party. There's every year, CAS puts a foster parent's Christmas party together. And so we all go there with our kids. And we just have a good time. And you walk around and you just see a sea of kids in desperate need of help. And, and they're the ones that got it. And there's countless more that aren't getting it because... There aren't enough foster parents. So there's always more, and it can seem overwhelming, and there's always another highway to adopt. Right? And we're going to do Christmas hampers this season with Dundas Central School, and we're going to do 20 hampers, and we're feeling pretty good about 20 hampers. Ryan could have found 20 more easily. Easily. 
And that can be very demoralizing, you know. You can kind of say, well, when the mountain is so big, why even start climbing? Here's what we need. We need, what did I call point three? We need the sign of the covenant. We need the sign of the covenant to remain vigilant, but also to even just desire to meet God's call to commit to people and to the world. And the only way to do that is to look at the sign of the covenant. Look at verses 12 and 13. It says, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now twice, in two verses, he talks about this sign, and he talks about this rainbow as being the sign. What does a sign do? A sign, as we've said before, points beyond itself to a reality that you cannot see with your physical eyes, right? I have set my, uh, sorry, God gives covenant signs as pictures that point past themselves to the reality that he is promising, this gospel of salvation. So we have baptism as a sign of salvation. We have the Lord's Supper as a sign of salvation. And here, God gives a sign to Noah of the gospel. And there's three things you got to do when you look at this sign. Here we go. First of all, you got to look at the clouds. Now, this comes from Charles Spurgeon by, by way of another preacher named Skip Ryan, but it's very important to remember Notice that, G, that God says, I have set my rainbow in the clouds. Well, duh. We think, well, of course, you need clouds in order to have a rainbow. But this is important. What would clouds mean to Noah? Right? Ark lands. Everything dries up. Doors open. Noah walks out. And it's bright and sunny. But eventually, at some point, it's going to get cloudy again. And he's going to look up and he's going to see these clouds. What is that going to do to Noah? What is that a sign of to Noah? It's a sign of judgment, right? The clouds are a harbinger of judgment. They're a sign of sin to him. And when we think of our relationship with God, what we have to remember is that sin got on that, that ark, but it also came off that ark. And that sin has been translated and has been inherited down through the ages to you and to me. We need to remember that. I remember we were just at membership class uh, uh, last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, and we were talking about the doctrine of salvation, and we were talking about how you know, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, and so we're talking about election and salvation and how all that stuff works together, and, and when you think about it, sometimes you think, man, this is unfair. God, why doesn't God save everybody? But if we didn't disconnect that question from the reality of our sin, then it seems unfair. If we connect it to the reality of our sin, then we got to ask the question, why does God save anybody? And so we got to remember the clouds. When you look at the rainbow, you've got to remember the clouds. But then, you've also got to remember the rainbow. <laughs> you got to look at the rainbow. The rainbows are beautiful, right? Like, have you ever seen that, that YouTube video of this guy who saw like a double or triple rainbow? I think he was high when he was watching it. But, but he was like, wow, it's like so beautiful. And then he's like weeping at the beauty of seeing these rainbows. Have you ever seen a rainbow? It's just like it blows your mind, right? It's quite a spectacular thing to see. And you don't have to, you know, go all the way to Arizona or wherever the Grand Canyon is to see something super awesome like that. 
So you've got to remember, they are absolutely beautiful. And yes, they too are a sign of sin. They're, sorry, they're, they're, they're a sign of God's answer to sin. Now, in your Bible, and in this translation, it says, I will set my rainbow in the side. I will set my rainbow in the sky. But the actual word is not rainbow. The actual word is just bow. And every Old Testament scholar will tell you that the word used there is a word to describe a bow from a bow and arrow. It's a weapon. It's a weapon of judgment. And so when you see the bow, what, what you are supposed to picture is, is God's weapon of judgment being hung up. His instrument of justice having been hung up as though God took his bow and arrow and he says, I'm going to put it on the wall. I'm not going to use it anymore. That's the beauty. So you've got to see the clouds, you've got to see the sin, but then you've got to see the beauty, the brightness of the, of the rainbow. But when you put that together, you've got to say, well, wait a minute, okay, he's not going to bring justice, but there's clouds in the sky, there is sin. How in the world do we reconcile all this stuff together? And this is the third thing. You know sin's still there, Noah knew sin was still there. You've got to look at where the light penetrates the darkness. When you look at a rainbow, what are you looking at? You're looking at a dark backdrop with light penetrating into that darkness, right? You have always these super dark clouds in the background, but the super bright light kind of behind you. And then you, you see this, this rainbow, and of course there's rain falling, and it's, it's quite, it's quite a, a picture to, draw, to, 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 to kind of take in. But what's happening here is, and this is Spurgeon once again, he's saying the rainbow, as it's pictured on the earth, when, it, when one of them happens and there's the darkness behind it and the light penetrating it, it's a symbol of the justice of God and the mercy of God coming together in a perfect, beautiful way. There are har- so a rainbow is a harbinger of both things. It's not just a harbinger of God's judgment, it's a harbinger of God's mercy. And centuries later... In the cross of Jesus Christ, those two things came together in a way that the world could never have anticipated. Again, Spurgeon said, what did Noah think of when he saw the bow? And he thought, this is a warrior bow, but wait a minute, it's pointing the wrong way, it's pointing up. If you were to fire an arrow out of that thing, it would go up, not down. But those centuries later, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and there was another great storm and darkness came upon the earth and God did release that arrow of judgment. But as anticipated in the bow with the arrow pointing up, on that cross, the arrow of God's judgment sunk into the heart of his own son. That's what we need to see. That's what we need to remember. Those three things, they have to become your story. You got to see the lengths that he went to to rescue you, to rescue humanity, to rescue this earth so that you join this mission out of gratitude, out of deep and profound gratitude. Seeing the beauty not just of creation, but the beauty of a redeemed creation at the incredible cost of God's own son. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the bow in the sky. Teach us every time to look at the bow with eyes to see that you, you bound yourself to us in this covenant relationship, this bond in blood, and we never could have anticipated that the blood that was spilt to maintain that relationship would be the blood of your dear son, Jesus. And make that sink into our hearts so that we become friends of other people, but not just friends of other people, friends of the earth. Do this, we ask in your son's name. Amen.